A reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discernment of spirits to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be, pre be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So as one of the resident Pentecostals uh, in, our, in our parish, um, I'm sure you can imagine my excitement in learning that I had uh, been given the privilege to speak on the same night that our lectionary text uh, is St. Paul's description of the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit. This, I think, is a perfect opportunity to get everyone whipped up into a nice charismatic frenzy. Uh, and, uh, well, no one can stop me, so. I think this is also a perfect uh, lesson to all of us to make sure you uh, check the lectionary te text before you ask someone to speak. This will be a good, uh, good learning experience for us all moving forward. Uh, Father Stephen and I, actually, we were joking before, uh, before tonight uh, about this sort of double meaning in the title typically given to this passage of scripture uh, concerning spiritual gifts and how that can both be, you know, as it pertains to spiritual gifts and also uh, the problem and terrible issue that is spiritual gifts. Uh, and I imagine if he was speaking tonight, it may be, our, our message may be more on the latter, but I'm the one with the microphone. So <laughs> let's talk about spiritual gifts. Uh, joking aside, I actually think this passage is, is telling in the effect that it has on us. Uh, I think on the one hand, the overwhelming majority of the church, uh, this passage tends to read less instructive uh, and, and not so much a practical rubric for our lives, but more of a historical side note trapped in the ambers of Scripture. Uh, I think for many of us it's actually pretty similar to the last sentence that immediately precedes this passage, uh, where St. Paul says, about other things I will give you directions when I come. Uh, I think many of us see this description of spiritual gifts as a bit like that statement, which once per was perfectly relevant to the hearers but which has become an unadaptable or no longer relevant passage for us today. There may be some historic, like useful historical value somewhere in there, uh, but it no longer seems to match the experience of our faith today, and as a result can seem somewhat distant or obscure, maybe concerning. Uh, St. Chrysostom captures this very well in uh, his homily on this same passage, 
uh, where he, he sort of presents the problem pretty simply. He says, this scripture is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts described in the scripture and by their cessation, since they used to occur but now no longer take place. And why do they not happen now? Why, look, now this obscurity has produced for us again another question, namely, why did it happen then and does so no more? I think that's a pertinent question for many of us as we approach this scripture. Why did the Spirit of God move like that, move in this way then, but just doesn't seem to anymore? Even for those of us with charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds, why does it seem to be the case that this movement of the Spirit was so normative that St. Paul can offer such a truncated explanation of what is happening in the life of the church compared with us where this seems to be the exception of, of our experience of faith. Because whether you are a dyed-in-the-wool Pentecostal or a complete and total cessationist, there is no way to deny the gifts of the Spirit to, uh, don't seem to be exercised nearly as ubiquitously as, the, as it did in this era of the church. And that begs the question, what does it say about God that the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully at one time but has since tapered off, so to speak? Don't we also need miraculous and inexplicable healings today? Wouldn't a midnight prison break for those, for those Christians who are persecuted be just as glorious today as it was for the early church? Wouldn't the chance to converse with my neighbor in a language I've never even heard be of immense profit to spreading the gospel? And yet, most of us still need to go to the doctor. And there are Christians who remain trapped as prisoners in labor camps. And if I want to go share the gospel in a foreign land, I have several years of language education ahead of me before that's possible. If I'm being honest, even in my background, which is a bit more charismatic than I think most people here, miracles were as much the exception to the rule as they seem to be even in non-charismatic circles. I imagine I'm actually probably not entirely alone in this, but it always seemed to be that the accounts of the miraculous were, were usually secondhand. Uh, it seemed like I hardly knew anyone who had themselves experienced the miraculous wonders attributed in the scriptures, miraculous healings, discernings of spirits, interpretations of tongues, raising from the dead, teleportation, as St. Philip experienced in the book of Acts. But nearly everyone seemed to know someone who had. And if you're a skeptic like me, or in, in sort of prone to, to sort of a skeptical disposition, it can be challenging to have those experiences only be secondhand. Even if you've seen a miracle or two in my day, I, I, I for one, I coming from a charismatic background. I've, I have loved ones who have spoken in tongues and, and have heard words of prophecy spoken. There's still this sticking point that it just doesn't seem to be that ubiquitous, certainly not in the, in the life of the, of the church broadly, but even in, in uh, Pentecostal or charismatic circles. The movement of God described by St. Paul in today's New Testament reading is almost enviable in its apparent normalcy. Paul talks about these gifts as a foregone conclusion of the experience of the church. Whereas I think if we received this text for the first time today, we might find ourselves pausing and saying, um, spiritual gifts? Augustine has sort of joined us in our, uh, in our confusion over this. Um, he wrote in his retractions, which is his, his work, where he went over his career and sort of uh, amended him, himself. 
He says, for even now, when a hand is laid on the baptized, they do not receive the Holy Spirit in such a way that they speak with the tongues of all nations. Nor are the sick now healed by the passing shadow of the preachers of Christ. Even though such things happened at that time, manifestly, they, these ceased later. But what I said is not to be interpreted, that no miracles are believed to be performed in the name of Christ at the present time. For when I wrote that book, I myself had recently learned that a blind man had been restored to sight in Milan near the bodies of the martyrs in that very city. And I knew about some others so numerous even in these times that we cannot know about all of them nor enumerate those we knew. Augustine is joining us in our big 19th century long shrug. The movement of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is really, frankly, confusing. The answer to St. Chrysostom's question, why did they happen then but don't seem to happen now, seems to just be, uh, they maybe kind of happen now, but not everywhere or always, not necessarily when you pray really hard for them. And it just doesn't seem to happen at the same magnitude that they did for the early church, even if you're the most charismatic Pentecostal in the world. To be honest, I think this actually might be in part why there's this natural tendency to look back on the apostolic era of the church as sort of this golden age of the faith. I've known a person or two in my time who has sort of looked at this, at this moment in the, the history of the church and said, well, that's what we need to get back to we need, before everything went astray. Uh, and in this, I think this is a tempting proposition to have that mindset. But if you need any evidence that there's no such thing as the golden age of the church, at least not yet, both the Corinthian epistles should suffice as that proof. The problems of the Corinthian church are really, really terrifying. You have uh, consistent abuses of power, intense social and uh, socioeconomic division, uh, and continued lapses back into the sins of their pagan, pagan upbringings, all with a sense of pride around all of it. That prompts these responses from Paul to say, um, don't do that. And yet, in spite of the crisis of their conduct, the Holy Spirit still is manifesting these miraculous uh, experiences among them. So I think it's worth stopping ourselves in the very first verse of, of tonight's passage, where St. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. In the church's background, it had been led astray, as, uh, to use the words of, of Paul, to wood and stone as the objects of their worship. And it was not an intellectual deception. It was a, uh, a cultural uh, sort of religious persuasion based not on what resonates with the true, but what seems to be common amongst, amongst the culture. The priests of these false gods did not want people to have any idea that there should be any power behind these gods, or, or, or what the source of that power would be. Because if, you, if they began to examine it, you know, it, it, the, the, the facade could all come crashing down on them. St. Paul, on the other end, or sort of like conversely, doesn't want people to be ignorant of what's happening in their midst. He doesn't want them to shrug off the wonders occurring amongst them. He's very quick to anchor the church to the sources, or to the source of their experiences. No one is here gathered saying Jesus is Lord by any other force or compulsion than the Holy Spirit. No amount of social or religious coaxing can produce that declaration of faith. 
It is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. Which begs the question, I think, to what degree might we be ignorant of what is happening in our midst? I would imagine that most of us here don't have an issue affirming our Trinitarian faith. But if we're being perfectly honest, how many of us give much thought to the Holy Spirit in our life? Not to say that we're not giving any thought, of course. But when we come to the table and receive the bread and the cup, how many of us find ourselves captivated by the mysterious interplay of the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit? How many of us even think to dwell on the Holy Spirit's role in our coming to better know the Father and the Son? How often do we think about the role of the Holy Spirit in shaping us into the image of Christ? I'm confident that many of us have some degree of thought, some notion of how the Holy Spirit is involved in our sanctification. But how seriously do we take that relationship with the Holy Spirit? I think the muddy waters of spiritual gifts or even the obscure nature of the Holy Spirit isn't actually all that surprising, at least not to me, we see time and time again in the scriptures these descriptions of the, of the character and nature of the Father and the Son pretty extensively. The Bible has a lot to say about who the Father and the Son are, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the scriptures are more inclined to discuss what the Holy Spirit does. This is not a universal rule by any means, and it's not to say that the scriptures are not, do not speak explicitly about the nature and character of the Holy Spirit, but it does seem to be a sort of a general guiding principle. It's more common to see the Bible trying to explain the nature of the Holy Spirit by exploring the work of the Holy Spirit. Even our, in our New Testament text this evening, we see St. Paul more apt to describe the character of the Holy Spirit by enumerating the evidence of that Spirit among the church. The gifts of the Spirit are, in a sense, the best way of describing the Holy Spirit. It, it, it would seem that the surest way to develop a robust pneumatology is actually to experience the Holy Spirit uh, over and above perhaps studying the Holy Spirit in the strictest sense. As though in trying to answer the question, what is the Holy Spirit like, the most accurate response possible is going to be an enumeration of the work that the Holy Spirit does. Which I think might inform the question I've I've posed, because perhaps in asking, I've already set us down the wrong road. Perhaps the question isn't best to be stated, how often do we think about the role of the Holy Spirit in shaping us into the image of Christ, but rather, how often do we experience the Holy Spirit shaping us into the image of Christ? How many of us are in the practice of being led into a deeper relationship of the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit? How many of us are nurtured in the mystery of the Eucharist by the Holy Spirit? Because I think if, if the Pentecostal tradition has much to offer us today, it would be something along the lines of the reminder that our experience of God is neither all through our rational mind or our emotional mind or our soul, that, that innermost being of ourselves, but rather that the Holy Spirit is meeting us in that peculiar estuary between mind and soul, in that space probably best labeled as mystery. I don't know if, if Pentecostal Pentecostals would agree with uh, being told that their best contribution is the concept of mystery, but I've said it, so thus it must be. I would like to focus on 
two ways, the regular ex uh, experience of the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital for each and every one of us in the life of the church. The first is that we should be quick to remember our life in the Holy Spirit is not merely some spiritual meditation and while we contemplate and stroke our chins in our intellectual high towers. Our active participation with the Holy Spirit, our deep and continued experience of the Spirit of God in our life is absolutely critical. St. Athanasius once was writing to, to uh, another bishop and was, was talking about a group of Christians who were denying the divinity of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know much about St. Athanasius, uh, Suffice it to say, his career was basically spent arguing with people denying the divinity of one of the members of the Trinity. Uh, and he has some pretty harsh words to say about them and why it's so problematic that they're getting this wrong. Uh, he says, therefore, while thinking falsely of the Holy Spirit, they do not think truly of the Son. For if they thought correctly of the Word, they would think soundly of the Spirit also, who proceeds from the Father and belonging to the Son is from him given to the disciples and all who believe in him. Nor erring thus do they so much as keep sound their faith in the Father. For those who resist the Spirit, as the great martyr Stephen said, deny also the Son. But those who deny the Son have not the Father. Our experience of the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial because it is by the Holy Spirit that God makes himself in his fullness known to us. When we fail to take seriously our relationship with the Holy Spirit, we forfeit the seriousness of our relationship with Jesus and with the Father. When the Holy Spirit is just some part of our faith that's there, but not participated in, we cannot draw any deeper into relationship with Christ. We can't really appeal in prayer truly to the Father. When we remain ignorant of the work of the Spirit in our life, we are rejecting Christ's ability to shape us and call us and lead us and correct us because he does so through the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a bizarre way of doing things, I'll grant. Uh, Jesus seems perfectly content with it being bizarre and doing it that way. Uh, it seems counterintuitive because if I was going to establish, try to establish a friendship with you, I, I doubt I would spend the entire time doing it through another friend, you know, where I would say, yeah, if you, if you want to talk to me, just let them know that you want to talk to me, and they'll let me know, and I'll let them know, and, and back and forth. That's a, uh, a gross misrepresentation, of course, of, of, what's, of what's happening, but I think it gets the point across that it can be so counterintuitive to us about why the Holy Spirit is so vital with our, our, uh, with our relationship with Christ, because this is part of the mystery of the Trinity, of how God reveals himself to his people. I think it is important to remember that we come to know Christ through the Holy Spirit. We come to experience Christ through the Holy Spirit. It is not merely for the sake of poetry or, or shoehorned Trinitarianism that our celebrant will say always some variant of, and now, O merciful Father, in your great goodness, we ask you to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine when, when we're when he's sanctifying, or when he's consecrating the, uh, the elements for, for, for our celebration of the Eucharist. Without the direct and active work of the Holy Spirit, these elements just sit on the table, no more meaningful than a bowl of crackers and a glass of wine. The work of the Holy Spirit in making these elements into something more and simultaneously making us into something more is absolutely vital. Because we do not experience Christ, we do not behold the cross, we do not believe in Christ's lordship truly without the Holy Spirit's work in us. 
For Christ, the gateway to deeper and truer relationship with himself is not a set of ideas or practices, not ultimately. It's a person. The second thing I want to I want to make note of is our relationship with one another in the church is nothing apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. In preparation for our next round of adult catechesis, a few of us have been reading uh, a book on the Apostles' Creed by Ben Meyer. And I find this passage from this book uh, a very astute articulation of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So if you'll indulge me for a moment. The Pentecost story shows the undoing of the fall through the creation of the Christian community. There is now a new human society in which all the old divisions are torn down. That is what happens when the Spirit is present. The Spirit fulfills the Creator's original plan by bringing forth a universal community whose boundaries are as wide as the world. The Spirit broods over the chaos of human nature, lovingly piecing the fragments back together so that together we may form an image of the Creator. Paul notes that the presence of the Spirit is marked by heightened individuality as well as deeper communal belonging. The Spirit fuses unity and diversity, bringing many gifts together into one body. We become more truly ourselves as the Spirit broods over us and as our lives are knit together with other lives and stories. In this way, the Spirit broods over each of Christ's followers, renewing the human race one life at a time and drawing all into a common family. There is nothing more personal and more universal than the Holy Spirit. Who we are as a gathered church, it is vital to recognize, is more, sorry, is as much a miracle as the gifts listed in our text this evening. The mere fact that the people sitting in this room are here is itself evidence of the active work of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. We cannot let ourselves overlook this glorious display of the power of God in our midst. Because as St. Paul makes clear, it is the same Spirit that, that produced the miraculous wonders seen in the early church that manifests those wonders amongst his people even today. That Spirit has drawn you to Christ as much as he has drawn your pewmate to Christ. And I, I think it's worth dwelling on that for a moment. I'm going to, I'm going to keep us here for just, just a moment. It does not take more than a few seconds of conversation to realize that we are not a particularly similar group of people. If we're being honest with ourselves, truly, actually, genuinely honest, how many of the people in this room do you think you probably would have pursued some form of relationship with outside of the context of, of this if, that we're doing right now? If you're like me at all, a uh, uh, sort of grumpy introvert, uh, the answer is probably no one in this room. While we are a collection of wildly unlike people, it is the same Holy Spirit that has drawn me to Christ and has drawn you to Christ and has brought us into fellowship with one another. If we look at the people gathered around us, we will see that us being here and gathered is an, an absolute miraculous anomaly in our time. In a political climate that increasingly prides itself on division and distinction, the gathered church is a powerful testimony of the miraculous work of God in the world. As ideological purity becomes a 
almost a civic virtue. And, 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 and casting out those who are not like me from my tribe. A gathering of people unlike each other is both confounding and convicting. I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine once who, who isn't a Christian, and I don't remember how it came up, but I was, I was talking about a discussion that Father Stephen and I were having where we had disagreed on some point, and I was more or less ready to move on in the conversation, um, and she sort of stopped me, and, and she said, well, if you disagree with him, how can you sit and listen to him speak? Like, if you, if you think he's wrong, how can you continue to be led by him? And I was like, quite, quite a bit caught off guard by that question, because in truth, it reflects sort of the common wisdom of our time, that if you are not in absolute ideological agreement, there is no reason to, to, to be unified with one another. Uh, that's sort of the wisdom of our age. The gathered church is a profound challenge to that wisdom. And I think our ignorance may well be thinking that this miracle of us gathered together is any less spectacular than the healings and wonders of the early church. Because while there are, as the scripture says, a variety of gifts, it is all the product of one single Holy Spirit. To every Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, all there are empowered by, the one, by one and the same Holy Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is a miracle that we are all witness to right now, and it is the kind of thing that is, is so anomalous and challenging that people don't understand why we would come together. It's not really for ideological consistency amongst ourselves. The reality is, amongst everyone here, we're probably not, we probably have more in disagreement than we have in, in commonality, just in terms of the total sum of things we likely disagree about. But the thing that has united us is not our work or our intellectual uh, fervor or the books we have read or the YouTube channels that we have watched. It is the Holy Spirit working in each and every one of us to bring us in unity to a worship and glorification of God in spite of our differences. And all of this is being done to, to, to show the world the glory of God in every bit the same way that the spiritual gifts as manifested amongst the early believers were a witness and a testimony of the glorious presence of God's breaking into the chaos of the world. So is the gathered church. If, if, you've, if you've known me for any time, this is, you'll hear me shouting this from a mountain. But the gathered church is an absolute miracle and a testament to the entire world that God is active and powerful and capable in our day as much as in any other time since the beginning of our creation. All of this is done to the glory of God, and we know that, and we know that God, because of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.